Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible, from the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hello and welcome to the Side Woo. This week's episode is one of our most candid and tender conversations to date, in part because of the extraordinary story of our guest, author and journalist, Michael Scott Moore, who in 2012 was captured by Somali pirates while in Somalia reporting on piracy. His book, The Desert and the Sea, was published in 2018 and recounts in detail his harrowing journey of living as a hostage for two and a half years. One of the most remarkable things about the memoir is the way that Michael describes his internal experience at the time with such clear detail. This includes facing his declining mental and physical health as captivity wore on, as well as reckoning with his father's own battles with mental health. He was released from captivity in 2014 and has since returned to the U.S. In 2018, he interviewed with NPR's Fresh Air, where he spoke in depth about his time in Somalia. If you're interested in learning more about that story, you should give it a listen, maybe even before you listen to our episode, as we don't go into the full history in our conversation. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to Michael was to hear what life had been like after being released from captivity, but also after publishing an international best-selling book that gave him the platform to tell his stories to millions of people all over the world. We were also curious to hear more about his love of and connection to surfing and how ocean therapy, or surf therapy as it's being called, has helped him and thousands of trauma survivors heal from PTSD. A couple other notes on the episode. In our conversation, I mentioned a few times a class that I took with Michael, and the class was called How to Write a Villain, presented by The Right Salon and I will post a link in show notes about them. But the reason I bring it up, which maybe I realize wasn't totally clear from our conversation, is the class was created to investigate how to write a well-rounded, complex villain that is an interesting foil to the protagonist. And in order to do that, you need to really be able to see the character as a holistic person, a human with both good and bad qualities. And I thought that this was particularly relevant in relation to the moment in the desert and the sea where Michael talks about finding a way to forgiveness with his pirate captors. And he's able to see them as people after two years, despite being mistreated and neglected. So I thought that was a really powerful connection that we go into in more detail. Finally, I would like to include a trigger warning. During this conversation, we talk a lot about mental illness and suicide. If you or anyone you know is feeling suicidal, you can text 988 or call the suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255. They are open 24 hours a day. As always, we welcome your comments and feedback. You can email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com. Send us a voicemail on our Anchor page, anchor.fm forward slash thesidewoo, or hit us up on our Instagram, thesidewoo. And, you know, we just love a good DM, I gotta say. If you have some thoughts, don't be afraid. Okay, well, with that, I will leave you to the episode. We hope you enjoy. So just for context, I know Vanessa Fabiano and Susanna Cochran. Yeah. Who you know? Yeah. 
How do you know both of them? Let's see. Susanna through friends in San Francisco. I think we were even in a in a reading group at some point. Okay. And then Vanessa through just from being in Europe. Oh yeah. She had a some sort of a website project that I wrote for a long time ago, and then I gave a talk in a class for her current project. It used to be called Madrid Bookie. It's yeah, the right yeah. salon. Yeah, I think it's yeah. called the right salon. Yeah. 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 And I took your villain class. And that's kind of how I officially got introduced to you. But I actually, so I wanted to say, I first became aware of you and your story listening to your Fresh Air podcast interview, Yeah, right. as I'm sure a lot of people did. And I was in my studio painting, just being like, oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Those, there were, t- I think, two NPR interviews and they got a lot of coverage. I mean, I, I know people in England who first heard about it that way. You know. Yeah. But do, were you there in Madrid? No. I'm, I'm going to say you were. I... I visited her in Madrid, but like I wasn't there for your talk. And I had a solo show in Madrid that Madrid Bookie paired with, but then it was all virtual because it was during COVID. So I got in just before COVID happened. And that was actually a long time to be going to Madrid because the numbers were probably spiking. Oh, right. Like late 2019 or something. No, early 2020. It was like February of 2020. (laughs) So people were getting sick, but it wasn't clear exactly what the danger was, right? And then by mid-March, it was like, am I even going to get back to the United States from Berlin, where numbers were also climbing? I was ahead of an avalanche there in Europe at the beginning of 2020. Oh my God. I was curious also what sign you are astrologically. I'm a Gemini. Oh. Oh. And, oh, (laughs) jeez. Well, we like to try to figure it out without going online to cheat and then talk about some of the aspects of what we think. But obviously, there's knowing of somebody, reading about somebody, and knowing somebody are obviously three different categories of knowing. And what was your guess? We had landed on Sagittarius. How are you, Gemini? I don't know anything about what that means, except that I'm supposedly schizoid or something. (laughs) Yeah. um, and, And that there are twice as many of us. I know... I was born in the first part of June, and I know more people who were born in the first part of June for some reason than almost any other sort of time of the year. Uh, those birthdays probably just stick in my head. But yeah, um, well, I'd be curious to see your chart. You know, not to be too nosy or anything, but <laughs> I'm sure that you have some Sagittarius because from the little I know about your biography, it's all about travel. And it's a fire sign. So, you know, courageous and well, you know, but yeah, anyway, I feel like it's so personal. Your birth chart is yeah. so private. So I, I usually do this with people I know. <laughs> I see. Okay. So I feel like I don't want to do it. With I do have a birth chart somewhere, but I don't know. Okay. I don't, I don't really know what it means. Um, do you know what your rising sign is? No, I can't remember. Oh, okay. It's okay. I feel like it's not a guy thing to know your entire birth chart, which maybe is a little stereotypical, but. I don't. I I I had a, an astrology phase when I was a kid, but now, you know, I'm a Jungian, but I don't go as far as astrology is. Oh, okay. I just have to, this is the last sentence about Gemini, I will say, unless it actually comes up. Gemini is accordingly excellent at guiding change and transformation. Uh-huh. These curious twins are terrific pioneers using their energy to spearhead innovative, creative projects. A fearless thinker, Gemini is always down to try something new. And then it goes on and on and it gets like deeper and more complicated as they always do. It sounds good to me, but but aren't we feared like on the dating scene? Do, does, don't people hate the idea of getting together? With you guys are pretty shady. We're shady, right? Well, yeah. 
Well, you're ruled by Mercury, which is inherently mercurial and not to be trusted. So I think that's where that comes in. But it depends on where all your other planets are and stuff. So I think we try not to stereotype by sun sign. The sun might be involved. Am I ruled by the sun if the sun was ascendant or something? Um. Not necessarily. Mercury is definitely the ruler of Gemini, but it could be that you have sun in your first house, in which case that would be... I can't remember. I'd have to dig it out. In- well, I would also like to say embracing dualities. Right. Shady might be a... One half. <laughs> there- Maybe just one aspect. That's just... Oh, that's one way of thinking about it. But yeah, embracing dualities and being able to see things from two different points of view. Oh, that's... Well, good for a writer. Yes. You know, someone who's like... Yeah really using their mind as their profession. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, dating is a whole other planet and it, you know, some of the things that make us like, I mean, I am now not talking about your dating. Let me be clear to the listeners. This is about me, (laughs) (laughs) but some of the things that like maybe make us successful and dynamic and charismatic in a room can be harder to don't always translate one-to-one into what is the yeah. Most. Like best qualities to be a partner. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a good friend. I'm a bad dater. <laughs> you know. The, there is a meme that I love that went around that looks like somebody's sort of chat conversation with their mother. And it's like, mom, what time was I born? And she answers, no, break up with her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's usually true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how you're trying to solve your problem for certain. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Don't do synastry until about six months in, but that's a good rule of thumb. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Otherwise it's just all in your head. Yeah. You're trying to preempt based on this thing that's dictating to you what your personalities are instead of finding out by being present. Like actual intimacy. Yeah. (laughs) You're having a relationship with with the ideas. Yeah, exactly. Anything to avoid that. Basically, you know what? I like the short thing. So <laughs> I say day one, carry on. Well, cool. Well, I wanted to say one other thing, you know, as surfing is the main theme of the episode, the theme music of the side woo is kind of inspired by Dick Dale's surf rock. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. this will be very on brand. <laughs> you know, I, I learned something about one of those, one of his hits, which is called Miserloo. It's an old folk tune. tune that he just set to this freakishly fast guitar, that sort of classic tune that you hear on Tarantino movies. I think it's he made it practically a theme tune in, in Pulp Fiction or Motif. Oh, wow. That goes back to Asia Minor. It does have kind of that minor chord feeling of one of the, you know, 16-stringed instruments, that kind of thing. And he learned to pick really fast, I think, from Hendrix. But anyway, Hendrix had some influence on the surf, those surf guitarists. But Dick Dale had some had some I, I forget which country but it had some asian ancestry but that particular tune goes back yeah oh that's interesting well and that kind of speaks to the global phenomenon of surfing i don't know if they're connected at all but maybe that's a good segue one of the things that you are connected to around surfing is that you wrote a book about the history of surfing and how it spread across the world to different yes coasts I guess maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about what your personal connection to surfing is and why you like it. Well, (laughs) I grew up in Southern California. I grew up here in Redondo Beach. And uh, when you grow up in Redondo Beach, you learn this story that George Freeth was the first surfer in the United States. He came over from Hawaii when Hawaii was not yet a state and brought the 
He was like Prometheus. He brought the sport of surfing to mainland America. And that story as such is true. He was the first guy to settle here in Southern California and establish not just surfing, but a, a lifeguarding culture. So without George Freeth, there would be no beach culture in the United States. It probably would have happened with someone else, but he's the guy. No question. He brought surfing from Hawaii to America. And a few decades later, it became a pop phenomenon and spread around the world. But surfing was always a lot more global than we think anyway. I think I first got the idea of writing that book only when I'd moved to Germany and realized that Germany had a surf scene. I'm like, okay, well, if George Freeth was the first surfer or the supposed first surfer in California, who was the first surfer or the main pioneer in Germany. Mm. And of course, there was a story. He was a lifeguard and he was still living at the time up on the North Sea. So in this incredibly cold water up near Denmark, yeah. you know, a guy named Uwe Drath first stood up on a surfboard in in Germany in the 1950s. Such a great name. So I realized that I could get a book out of that and that would also trace, superficially it would trace the history of American influence after World War II, you know, the spread of this one particular pop culture phenomenon to places like Morocco, which did receive surfing from Westerners and from hippies, not directly from Americans. Um, Japan, same deal. We had a marine base in Japan. So by force of American arms, this slightly American form of pop culture arrived in Japan. But of course, the roots go back to Hawaii and many, many cultures around the world had some form of wave writing that just goes completely unacknowledged because that's the trunk history. You know? But I went to West Africa where a couple of fishing communities had a bodyboarding tradition. Then it turned into a stand-up surfing tradition when someone came with a stand-up surfboard. And I went and talked to these guys and I said, well, you know, I met some kids who like to ride boards and then their fathers who had liked to bellyboard. And I said, well, how far back does that go? And they just went, we don't know. It's probably centuries. All they did was hack boards out of the bottoms of their father's canoes which is totally crazy to think of people, yeah. like the things that you see now and what they used back then to surf these insane waves. Incredible. And that's why the difference in those boards indicates why surfing took hold here in Southern California. Mm. There, there was an innovation going on with aerodynamics and flow dynamics, partly because of World War II mm. and all the aerospace that was happening here around LA that resulted in a whole lot of experimentation from the old wooden Hawaiian model of surfboard to a new fiberglass form. And of course that was going on in other places, but this was the epicenter in the forties and fifties and sixties. Yeah. And so in that sense, it really became a new sport once it became a pop sport with new kinds of surfboards. And from here, it, it became this pop phenomenon around the world. And so that was the focus of the book, but of course there are many other surf cultures and, that are not strictly stand-up surf cultures, but wave writing cultures in other parts of the world. So it's a, it's a much more global phenomenon than you would think at first glance. You know? I have a quick question about that because it's almost like in my mind, surfing is two sports where I think of, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the meditation aspect of it and people in the ocean and experiencing that, the surrender of being in the ocean. But how, when did it become and I do not surf, nor am I like personally familiar with surf culture, but become competitive where it was, you know, mm-hmm. how big and fast and technical and yeah. like, when, was that a specific change? And are, is that sort of seen as two separate experiences? Actually, it is. So yes, that's a good point. 
now it's highly professionalized since a lot of the videos you see are of pros you know ripping up during a contest or whatever but yeah they're, they're two different activities three if you count big wave riding in fact the, there are guys in not just in hawaii who specialize in waiting for a big swell and, and only competing in these big wave contests. And they're different from the regular professionals because those are different skills. Mm. There might be crossover, but but the champions in one league are not necessarily the champions in the other. Oh, interesting. And then you have all the other surfers like us who don't compete at all. I would say if surfing is a thousand years old in the Hawaiian Islands, there was certainly evidence of contests that go back hundreds of years. Kings, you know, it's called the sport of kings because they would mount these festivals and there would be um, not just roasted pig on the beach, but surf contests in the water. Right. They didn't have fins on their boards. They didn't angle too well on those waves. So they were probably racist. So yeah, what did that do? Because you, yeah. you talked about that a lot in your book and I was trying to imagine what does that mean exactly? It, so that was an A main innovation in California. But the old Hawaiian style of surfing didn't involve as much angling. They probably you know did it when they could if the wave was forgiving enough. But the contest probably involved mm. like a race to the shore, you know, distance or speed. Uh, and angling is when you navigate inside a wave or you can kind of carve out. When you can really cling to the wave because of your fins, then you can angle and keep on a nice clean face instead of getting mixed up in the white water. Got it. And that became, I mean, it's easy to make it too strict, but that's that was the difference between the old Hawaiian style of surfing and the pop phenomenon that started in California. The fins on the bottom of the surfboard were not invented in, in Australia. You know, there was another surf pioneer named Duke Kahanamoku, who's much more famous than George Freeth now. You've probably heard his name or seen him, who brought surfing to Australia in like 1915. Sorry, the Australians didn't advance <laughs> very far. They were not innovators until they saw the first Californian boards and said, First of all, they didn't, they were skeptical, but then soon they're like, oh, we can innovate too, you know, and they, they started to do their own sort of thing through the 60s and 70s. But the point is that once you had these inventors do, working with this weird new material and sometimes poisonous material, they, they could really invent a new style of surfing, which is more like what we would recognize now than what the Hawaiians would recognize. Because it's a lot lighter, right? Is part of it. The foam and the fiberglass combination is a lot lighter than a carved board, a wooden board. And the, the shape of the board, as well as the fins, are specifically designed to work well in certain kinds of surf. Yeah. I mean, they look like, I, I kind of, in my mind, I compare them to figure skaters. This freeness of movement that just looks so fun to do, but you consciously know it's so hard. But it looks so freeing and so fun. I just... To be a really good surfer must be the best feeling. Well, it, yes, mm. and that's a, a really good comparison to what a surf contest is now. Wow. So we no longer race like the old Hawaiians do, but there's this panel of judges and they sit there and they judge your four. So it's really subjective and therefore controversial. A lot of people complain about the scores. that The Russian judge. <laughs> they, they, Yeah, there's always some Russian judge. No, the... The pro surfers get used to a certain repertoire of moves that they know will score big and they know how to get a, a good scoring wave. And that doesn't mean the most daring succession of moves on a wave. You know, it enforces a certain mediocrity or a certain conservatism. So free surfers in that sense are more inventive. Okay. So, yeah, I was going to say that sounds like some shade, Gemini. <laughs> yeah, it's shade. It totally is. <laughs> That's cool. 
Liz, you lived in Hawaii, right? No, I, well, I spectacularly flamed out at living in Hawaii when I was. How long were you there? I really did not live there. I was there for, I think, six months uh-huh. and I was 24 and it was after college and I mean, a couple of years after college and I got a position with the Red Cross doing basically education and then if needed, just on the ground disaster relief. Mm-hmm. And so like we went to Saipan, which is part of the Northern Mariana Islands. But I, you know, I did not in any way prepare myself emotionally for living on Hawaii. I grew up in Manhattan and I basically just, I couldn't connect to the world around me. I felt super, super isolated. And it's not that people weren't nice, but I I couldn't find my foothold. I couldn't. And the thing, Mm -hmm. the aspect of surfing, the aspect of people really, I couldn't join in in that. And I couldn't join in with like having family Uh there. I know that I am not the first white woman from the mainland to try to move to Hawaii and just flame out spectacularly. And I saw Goodwill hunting in the movie theaters just to date myself. And I was so homesick. Like I was crying so much about their friendship about like, well, they just like their deep love friendship for each other. And I was like, I got to (laughs) go. Right. Ah. Mm. Yeah. So Hawaii is a surprisingly closed society. I mean, and, and importantly, right. I mean, that's a self-protective instinct too. The surfers, especially are very territorial because so many people go there to surf and so many of them are not as good as the locals and don't respect the locals. So there's a, and that carries over into the island lifestyle too. Everything that we think of as a cliche of Polynesian living is, is a tourist image. It's, there's a surprising amount of poverty on Hawaii, and a lot of people are very resentful of just newcomers. Yeah. What's your surfing style? Because it it seems like, from what I've heard from the few people I know that do surf, is just competitive and protective. Whenever you try to learn somewhere, mm-hmm. you have to kind of fight off the the locals or the regulars. Or is that something you've been doing your whole life, and so you're just used to it? Or no. Well, when I was a kid, I was. I was a better student than I was a surfer. So I, I, I didn't hang with the, with the guys who had to decide whether or not to go pro, right? That's what the okay. sort of atmosphere was at my high school. There, were, there was a coterie of very good surfers. And when they were 16 or 17, they already knew whether they were going to have a future career. I was never like that. But now, since I'm living here again, I am a local. I mean, I'm, I'm an old timer. And I recognize the guys who, that I can stick away from. I recognize the the people who are out there learning, out there on soft boards and stuff like that, and who maybe don't know the, the wave quite as well. Mm. That doesn't mean I'm an aggressive surfer. It just means that in a crowd situation, I know when I can take a, take my wave. I um, see. And what's the mentality of taking a wave? To Liz's earlier question, what's the, the vibe of the surf? You mean in a crowd? Yeah, and just in general, what do you need to do to get yourself into that headspace? I mean, that... That's automatic to me now because I think even just smelling the ocean air, especially if I'm down there with a, with a board, I, you're already walking across the beach, you, you get into this mode of, of surfing, which is you're simply not thinking as much. You know, you, you go out and your, your body has to work. And yeah. one of the most wonderful and restorative things about surfing is that once you're on a wave, once you catch one, you have to focus on that and you have to focus on the moment, otherwise you're gone. So it becomes, although it's very physical, it becomes also very meditative. And 
like you said earlier, Elizabeth, you, you, you can't, you can't force your way around in the ocean. I think you said that you, you can't tell the ocean. What to do, so you have to sort of go, go with flow in a certain way. It was from the concept of surrender right. and you have to surrender to the ocean, you know, finding things that are greater than yourself, that no matter what you do, what you think, who you are, how you feel, the ocean will just not listen. <laughs> you know, you can't, you're screaming at the void. Well, you yeah. go down to the ocean for something and the, and the ocean will give it to you, but not on your terms. No. Right. You can't tell the ocean what to do. It's an interesting paradox, which I don't think is true in every sport. In every sport, you do have to find an equilibrium and a balance. But in surfing, especially, although you're down there to work, you have to work with the ocean. You can't work against it. Otherwise, you'll you'll get killed. So it's this balance. I'm learning how to do energy work. And I went down to the ocean to practice one of the techniques Mm -hmm. I have of going into the energetic body of a place because you can do it on people, but you can also do it on places. Mm -hmm. So I went down to Pacifica, which is south of the Bay. And I kind of was just sitting on the beach and did whatever I do into the ocean. And I got this message of just power Mm -hmm. and like, no feelings about it. It was just unrelenting, unapologetic power in that as humans, Mm -hmm. we need to acknowledge it because it's not there to like, it's not doing it because it's mean, but it will destroy us if we don't respect it. And I just thought that was so interesting because I don't know that we're taking that message right now, you know, as humans. So no, not as a group. Felt very relevant. Not as a group. But anywhere humans have to interact with nature, I think the lesson is respect. Absolutely. Even even a hunter in, let's say, New England has to respect the forest if they they seriously want to deer, you know. Yeah. And that's that seems like an anti-nature kind of activity. It's not. It, it can be. <laughs> you know, you can go about it wrong. But hunting is, is also an ancient sport that needed to respect. Well, I think at this point, we have to remove so many layers of a traditional day to even get to a point where, I mean, because if the lesson is respect, obviously it's not a lesson learned. But I would argue even on a smaller level, maybe the message is respect, not because the force of nature is so powerful against you. It's like, even when you're going on a walk and you decide not to throw something away on the ground, or you don't step on that bug just because you can, you know, I always think about that. There's a respect that comes from being more powerful than the elements around you and still honoring it as if it's an equal, you know? And I think that takes a super strong level of mindfulness too, because you know, we get busy and all the reasons why we're, we're basically destroying the planet is like, it's inconvenient, you know, and you don't have to because, you know, squirrels aren't going to attack you, but it's nice to treat them well, you know? Right. Well, and that's what it is. I mean, when you're in the water, it's mindfulness or just a certain awareness. You have to have your eyes open. Paddling out through whitewash is not easy. You know? And if the waves are big, you can, you can get frustrated right there. So you have to learn how to work instead of... Yeah going straight into the waves and working against them, you have to learn to work around them. And of course, that's true with all of nature. And of course, we have set all these layers of an alternative reality on top of our natural lives. And we keep doing it, right? With every generation, we put another layer. The digital layer is just the most recent example. But then we fall for it. And we tend to think, oh, well, you know, Instagram is reality. Of course, it's not. And, you know, I'm old enough not to have fallen for that. But it is easy to get into that trap of thinking, well, you know, I've got a Zoom call at three. That's important for your relationship with that, that person. But it is an extra layer of unreality that we put on top of our lives. Yeah, that I think a lot of people are really getting sucked into. 
absolutely to the detriment of their mental health. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of that, maybe we can talk about the work that you're doing with the surf therapy organization. It's Jimmy. What's the full? It's called the Jimmy Miller Memorial Foundation. And I started to work with them when Sweetness and Blood, the surf book came out more than 10 years ago now. They they helped promote it around here. So I've had a relationship with them for a long time because I knew Jimmy. Jimmy was a very good surfer at my high school. He was one of that crowd where the question was whether he was going to go pro or not. And he went to Berkeley and became kind of a soul surfer. He made his living around surfing, but he, he, I don't think he ever went out pro tour. But surfing was incredibly important to him from a very young age. And then at some point he developed a really bad shoulder problem to where he couldn't paddle with one arm. And he stopped being able to go out in the water and whatever mental health problems were being held at bay by surfing started to oh, really? you know, bubble up. And I, I think his parents have said that he started to be a bit schizophrenic within about nine months of the, the final injury. He, he hanged himself. So he's an important person for me to memorialize, but also his parents are great. And they do a certain thing called surf therapy, which they've helped. And I'm still trying to get a handle on scientifically, but I can tell you anecdotally that it works. If you put somebody who's a little bit too much up in their heads or has panic attacks or whatever else, you put them in the water, they come out feeling great. (laughs) Uh, And so they started to do surf therapy sessions at Camp Pendleton for Marines in about 2008. This was all before I was in Somalia. I was living in Berlin. I learned about it, but certainly when I got back from Somalia and at the latest when I moved here from Berlin, which was a few years ago now, I participated. I mean, going to Pendleton and teaching the Wounded Warrior Brigade to surf and to get over whatever they're trying to recover from was a way for me to get back to the military because a lot of those guys, maybe not Marines, but some special operators were always on call to come get me from somewhere who was a hostage. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. So it's even more important to me now to work with the Jimmy Miller Foundation, at least when I can. But we've got a, a good local neighborhood relationship that has only gotten more important with time. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I was watching the TED talk that the woman who's running it now gave Carly. Oh, Carly is the the woman who got a PhD in, uh, okay. I don't know if it was called surf therapy, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, in developing this idea of surf therapy. She's put down some of the academic work behind the idea. So Carly Rogers, yeah, she's terrific. She, she helped develop the idea with the Jimmy Miller Foundation, but she's slightly independent of them too. Uh, okay, good to know. For the listeners, one of the interesting things she said is what you do to learn surfing is the opposite of the symptoms of PTSD. And she listed, you know, this is obviously very general, but she listed those as isolation and then the reliving of trauma and then the hypervigilance, always waiting for it to happen again. And that to surf, you have to, or at least in these workshops that they're doing, you're part of a group, you're working with teammates, and then your mind can't do other things. Like you said, it takes your 100% presence to be in the water and getting on the wave. And then I thought it was interesting. She kind of drew the comparison between the hypervigilance of post-trauma and then the excitement of riding a wave and the scariness of it. And I thought that's almost more like a corrective Mm -hmm. experience, taking that Mm -hmm. energy of fear and channeling it into something that's really positive and gentle. Exactly. That's what some veterans have said. There was a Vietnam vet who was helping to coach too down at Pendleton. And he, he said, you know, when he was in battle in Vietnam, and this was decades ago, he was still feeling the effects, right? 
it was chaos and it was lethal. And he said, when you go out in the ocean, it's chaos, but it's with a smile. So in that sense, I, I think it is a really good recovery method for people who've been exposed to uh, firefights and, and a bash. You know, I haven't. But it, in either case, you're going out into a place where it's at least nominally more dangerous than sitting on the beach. And yeah. like I said, you've got to work your body, but at the same time, you have to respect those forces. Did you use surfing for yourself after you got back from Somalia? Yeah. I mean, that was natural, but I, and I wasn't living here right away. So I, I finished writing the book, The Memoir of the Desert and the Sea, while I was still in Berlin. Yeah. But every time I came back to California and I also took one trip to Costa Rica, and I noticed that every time I surfed, I felt better in a way that didn't backslide. Mm. So at least within those first couple of years of recovery, the first year especially was really important. Every time I surfed, felt great. And I just felt great on a continuous basis. So that, that's how it was for me. I was probably not surfing enough. I was surfing so rarely that one good session would really make a difference. Well, I think that the, the idea of like, you have to work with your shadow side. If you have mm-hmm. trauma, you know, you've been in an environment with chaos and danger, or if you've been in domestic situations, which mm-hmm. are very unpredictable yeah. or however it comes into people's lives, that your healing has to include some of those aspects that reference back to that. And in some Mm -hmm. ways, it's like the anti-Instagram where the recovery of things is not the complete annihilation of all of that. Absolutely. So for example, having been an active alcoholic drug addict years and years ago, the antidote is not to be as intellectual, internal, you know, sort of Spartan stoic as possible. It's to safely embrace (laughs) the same occasionally wild impulse, you know, like go have fun on your day trip. That was spontaneous. Don't blow up your life, but like go drive for 50 miles and be like, where's the gas station? I'm running low. You know, you, there's ways to channel some of what happened into. Absolutely. And I, I think that's one thing that the Marines are getting when they first learn to surf is that, you know, that chaos, but with a smile. But also a friend of mine named Thad Zielkowski, who's a terrific writer, wrote a book recently called The Drop about the the parallels between surfing and addiction. Mm. So in other words, the addictive quality of surfing is very similar to, Mm. I think, in terms of neural pathways to chemical addiction. And that's why, first of all, there's so much drug abuse or has been in the surf community. And then second, it also makes surfing a remedy because you can go out there and get that kick but without a substance. Well, anything that makes everything go away has mm-hmm. a potential, you know, like, <laughs> right. You're like, I felt better and I felt better for a long time and it made my brain shut off and, you know, and yeah. that was great. You know, it, it's just not inherently a negative consequence. Like, you know, yeah. right. cocaine inherently has a negative consequence <laughs> eventually. Exactly. Yeah. I, I just want to say something positive for stoicism, though. The way we use it in America is to say that it's somehow unemotional. But if you read the Romans, they were very, very in favor of being in touch with their emotions. They were almost Buddhist, though, in their detachment from their emotions. So in other words, they wanted to acknowledge what they were feeling, but not react in terms of you know, the worst first thing they felt. And you can you can read Stoics now and say, well, that that would make sense on Instagram. So, 
Great. Well, and as an Italian coming from, an, you know, my mom's side of the family is Italian. Like, yeah, sometimes you don't need to say everything on your mind. Exactly. <laughs> like, you learn that at the dinner table. Weathering the storm quietly <laughs> until you get it sorted is not always the worst strategy to take. <laughs> But well, I was wondering, you kind of mentioned the idea of like backsliding as you were recovering. So I was wondering if we could kind of switch gears and talk about reentry after you came back from Somalia. And then we could just start that. And I was going to say that we're going to do kind of a biographical intro where we do talk about some of your history, unless you want to, I don't want you to feel like you have to go into it again, just because okay. we don't like to re-traumatize anyone, you know, so... Uh- Actually, talking about it helps because I need a, a relationship with it. But I've talked about it so much that this, you know, there's an open door back and forth between that part of my life. And the, the whole point of writing, I think, at least as far as it's therapeutic, I never thought of it like this before. But in writing the memoir, I established a relationship with those memories that I think some of the other guys that I was held hostage with have not. Right. I was going to ask you about that, how telling your story both in writing and then so publicly. I tried to do research on a lot of your podcasts that you did around 2018 when the book came out. You tell your story over and over again, how that felt having that lens on it, almost like you have to put the outsider lens on it. I, the, the main thing I learned was how to condense it and how to give something valuable in, in not very much time. Because what I had done was sat down for two, almost three years to write The Desert and the Sea. And I, luckily I found a publisher who would let me do that. You know, Most hostage memoirs are they're rattled out in six months, sometimes oh, with, wow. with a ghostwriter and a recorder. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to craft my own book. And in retrospect, I actually think that it was the discipline of structuring the book as opposed to anything you know, about gushing on the page that hmm. was the, the real therapy. Oh, interesting. I think that the 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 more rational structure that the book demanded was, if anything, more therapeutic because it forced me to put everything into a logical sequence of events. Mm. It forced me to build a story, which I already had in my head, but it forced me to defend it too. And that that's nothing else happens in talk therapy. Right? I mean, that's yeah. Freudianism 101. So, and for some reason, I had never made that connection. That's so interesting. I feel mm-hmm. like when you hear keep a journal, write down things as a way to, you know, sort of release them from your psyche. So they have less of a hold. It, I I do always associate that with just like, get it down there, get it out, you know, gush, 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 gush. Yeah. Like free channeling. Yeah. yeah, Just free channeling the words, but I just haven't thought about that. What would it be like to have in some ways an external safety boundaries around what and how you're saying. So it's not every feeling is driving the ship at all times, but you also have to reflect on, am I clear? Am I, is this, Mm -hmm. you know, does this hold through? Is this what was real? Is it, you know, all of those type of questions that make it more, um, sort of more coherent. coherent. Yeah. 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 You put them in a logical sequence and you, you defend yourself against some contradictions, right? You, I mean, that's the process of writing any book. You sit down and on, on page three, you say this. And then on page 36, you say that. Like, wait a minute. I can't go to the publisher like that. I can't be too inconsistent. I, I have to know what I'm thinking. and I have to be honest about what I'm feeling, but I also have to know what I'm thinking and what I'm trying to say. Of course, I've always known about that discipline. And that's one reason I became a writer. I wanted to make sure that I've made sense to myself. But I don't think that I gave writing the time of day as a therapeutic discipline 
mm. in exactly that sense. You know, the, the, the colder framework is also really helpful. Um, yeah. You're a journalist, so uh, maybe that's part of it. But yeah, I'm curious why you didn't see it as like, do you see yourself I, as an artist at all? Or are you also, yeah, no, I write fiction too. Yeah. My first book was a right. novel. So that, and that, if anything, was more of an exercise of taking this really unformed and sometimes very uh, emotional or also sensual material and putting it into some sort of order. I find, I find that to be really, if anything, harder than nonfiction, because at least with, with the, well, while I was writing The Desert and the Sea, I knew what happened in Somalia. Right. I could remember what happened to me. I did have to do some more research to give a, a wider context mm. to, to piracy itself and make it a book worth reading for other people who didn't necessarily care about what happened to me. But I did know the sequence of, it, of events. And in fiction, you don't. You're making it up. So if there's something wrong with the form, you can also change the content. And I think that maybe the process has been so painful for me when I sit down to write fiction that I don't think of it as therapeutic. Fair enough. <laughs> but I do think that the last stages of organizing any book and turning that sequence of events into a logical narrative um, is in itself worth in mind. Yeah. During the pandemic, I tried writing a travel memoir about I was doing a lot of artist mm-hmm. residencies. And I think one mm-hmm. of the things that held me up is I had to know the stakes, which for you, it was very obvious, but then also get to some revelation about what the takeaway was. And I feel like you did this really great job of intermingling your family's history of mental health mm-hmm. in with your own journey to stay sane and safe. And I wonder how much that caught you by surprise that you were dealing with that both during your time in Somalia and writing. That was a bit of a surprise. It, the idea of, so the, what you're talking about is that my father committed suicide when he was, when I was 12 and he was about my age now. And I had to think about that long and hard in Somalia. I mean, yeah. that, that probably played into some of my motivations to go. I mean, of course, I was on a story and I'd been following this trial for a year and I was immersed in this material yeah. even before I went to Somalia. But, you know, I, I came closer to suicide while I was there than at any other point in my life. So that was cause for reflection. To bring that up for the, for the book, since it's not mainly about me or my family, was difficult because I wasn't sure how much to you know, you bring up this bit and then you have to bring up all this other stuff to make it make sense. And then all of a sudden you're not writing about pirates anymore. So maybe the trickiest part of the book was the balancing act between my personal material and the more journalistic story I had to tell. Yeah. But I'm glad it works because that, that took a lot of time and effort. There was history, there was basic shoe leather reporting, there was what I went through, and then there was my family history that had to be it had to keep moving. <laughs> and that was the Yeah. Well, and I think it really speaks to this, like where it's more universal is it's this internal journey that we all go on, but to a very lesser extent, but that people can relate to the idea of something happening and kind of unearthing this stuff that you didn't think that you would have to deal with. And learning that it might be a motivation for what's going on now. Yeah. Did you feel that way like that having that happen led you to because I know you kind of say it in your book, did I purposely put myself in this position? What's your perspective on that now? Yeah, for sure. I, I still don't know. I mean, that, that aspect of it, you know, human motivations are, are always a bit obscure. But I, I think I teased some of that out uh, in the book. But, uh, you know, in the end, what I did was cause myself more trauma. And, and I'm sure there are, there are feelings from that period of my life, which is now almost 10 years old, that have yet to... 
surface. So, but I'm at least more aware of how these things can steer your decisions without being conscious. But it's, you know, that that becomes a theme because that becomes fate, right? That that shapes a life. So it is still a theme in my writing, but um, I I won't say that I've mastered it in my life. <laughs> That's fair. Liz, where are you going to go? I've like three things sparked in my head and I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one. Okay. First one is the <laughs> idea when you hear a story like yours, when you hear a story about trauma and recovery and then awareness and consciousness building and its importance is, as you both were saying, it's not because most people will relate to the experience of being captured. It is because we all relate to right. the, to a lesser degree, the experience of having very, very hard things externally shape what our inner reality is and feeling mm-hmm. trapped and feeling out of control and all, all of the mm-hmm. ways in which we emotionally relate to other people's experiences. And then I also wanted to bring up the kind of unknowable X factor of why some people can move through things and some people can't. It's something that I think about a lot. Like, why do some people get to recover? Why do some people get to, obviously you were a journalist, you had training in how to experience and think simultaneously. You had the intellect to be able to actually Mm -hmm. give words to things. And that is obviously not something everybody has aspect to, but like, I'm a little embarrassed calling it an X factor, but I do think that there's this little molecule inside, inside people where no matter what I read about why surfing works or I mean, or anything, why talk therapy works, why CBT works, why EMDR works, the unknowable part that allows people to um, carry on. And maybe that's where spirituality comes in. You know, maybe that is where faith comes in as opposed mm-hmm. to like a reckoning. But yeah, I just was curious about your take on that. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's a really good question. And that might feed into the next uh, nonfiction book that I write. That's just, that sounds like a good topic for your next book. <laughs> it, it, it will be. I mean, it's uh, any clarity on that will probably help me organize the book. But it's true that you can think of it as, you know, just the emotions that you go through after something like that or during the yeah. traumatic that right. it's not necessarily your fault, but it might be can reflect on that too. Let's say you have a line that's like sea level and the emotions can keep you underwater and, and drive you into a more self-destructive direction where you can exist somewhere above that water line and feel more or less in command of your emotions. And why some people can do that and other people can't, I don't know. But I do think that, that first of all, I think other, anyone can learn it because it's a discipline of detachment. So it goes back to the Stoics, but also if you prefer Buddhism than Hindu, um, it's t- detachment from those emotions that seem so all important at a given time. And that's a discipline, that's a practice, that's something you can learn. I still go through phases where the emotions are overwhelming. I mean, I, I can very much imagine that's, that a lot of stuff that I went through 10 years ago now in Somalia is still, still has yet to come back. Um, so mm. maybe my talent is compartmentalizing, and that's not the healthiest thing in the world. But I do think that when that stuff happens, finding some discipline or some practice to remind yourself that you have some distance from it, that you are not just angry, you are not just depressed, that level of detachment helps keep you above the the waterline. And in Somalia, while I was doing it, 
when I was getting through it, only a couple of things helped. One of them was yoga. And I, I would have been in a really bad emotional state if I had to get through every day depressed, if I didn't have one hour where I could do yoga and sweat and feel better. I was not meditating at the time, but I, that would have been another thing. For some people, it might be prayer. But, you know, if you're free, of course, then you can go surfing. Sure. <laughs> Everyone yeah, has right. a thing. But I do think that you have to be, eventually you have to think about that difference between your actual self and the emotions you're going through. Um, and there is a difference. So whether the practice to get out of that morass is philosophical or religious or spiritual, then I think that's up to the individual. In our last episode, episode 24, Liz and I were talking about the symptoms of OCD and PTSD and how I've had experiences where, you know, I'm in a quiet room and afraid I'm going to start screaming or say something horrible really loud and just be totally embarrassed or I'll get fight or flight responses where I imagine myself doing something violent and in waking life. This is not a dream. Exactly. Yeah. You're actually afraid you're going to suck at a party. Yeah. Like I'm in like a concert hall and it still happens occasionally, but yeah, I will get like full blown anxiety attack. Because Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to say something. And then that feeling kind of Mm -hmm. comes to a culmination where I'm just like, it's almost easier to just have like a full body nervous breakdown than like think about it anymore. And, you know, like I've spotted that now having done it a couple of times and I just know that it potentially is coming. And so I'll learn tricks. And same with when I first started driving again after like 10 years I would drive over the Bay Bridge and literally think I was going to like drive off the bridge. Like my hands would start going numb and like, but you know, I learned tricks like one, I knew to expect it Mm because as much as I thought, oh, well, this time I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. It would happen again, you know? So I was like, okay, it's going to happen. So what can I do to make this easier? And like on the Bay Bridge, I would drive in the middle lane. Sometimes I would drive at like 30 miles an hour, just like, Mm-hmm. as slow as I could handle. And then I would, you know, not look at the sides because I realized part of what would freak me out is seeing the ocean below. Ah, so right. stuff like that where it's, mm-hmm. it's stupid and it's not necessarily a long-term solution, but I kind of was just like, if I can't see the edges, I'm going to mm-hmm. be okay. And so then yeah. I would just kind of do that. And then now I can look out, love the skyline, love the light, you know, whatever. But it took a long time to get there, you know? But what did you have to do? You had to watch what your mind was doing, right? You had to step outside yourself briefly and, and think about what you were actually thinking. So that's a, that's a level of consciousness that not, not everyone has automatically. Well, and it's like you have to admit, I'm going through this thing that is embarrassing to even admit that I'm going through. And you don't want to believe that you are going through it because you're like, that's, that's not who I am, you know? But right. then in order to solve the problem, you need to be like, well, this is what well, it's happening now. Yeah. Exactly. So I need to now treat this as an actual problem. And then it's the the curiosity to find out what's going on, right? And then you start to recognize patterns. And I think those things are very helpful. I mean, everything I just said about detachment, it would be nice if it were that simple. I think those are just underlying principles. I think every problem like this has certain roots, probably in, in somebody's past, that's interesting to learn, but maybe not totally essential, right? But understanding what's happening at the time that it's happening is that's right there. That's a moment of detachment, right? And a a moment of regarding yourself as something besides this creature that's suffering these emotions. What you're feeling. Yeah. You're looking at it like a block or like a sculpture in front of you that you have to move around. And that duality of mind, or maybe it's non-duality, but that, that capacity for awareness of the mind is... 
I mean, of course, everyone does it, but it's close to uniquely human. I don't know if it's something animals do. There's a way in which, I mean, Sarah, I feel like you're, you know, talking pretty clearly about OCD and intrusive thoughts, you know, which mm-hmm. come in sort of like a movie running in your head. They just commandeer yeah. sort of what's happening and just mm-hmm. tell you all of your anxieties and all everything that you are scared of happening. They pretty like, much say, is, yeah. this is now about to happen. Here it is. And you start mm-hmm. emotionally living all of your worst case scenarios even though they're not mm-hmm. happening, that you're thinking about them. It, the brain is creating an emotional reality. But mm-hmm. what's interesting and what really ties into um, what you were saying about discipline and structure is that every instinct you have in that moment to reassure yourself, to tell yourself it's going to be okay, is just going to fuck you up. You know, it's going to add to your, it's going yes, to elongate yeah. all. Of, I mean, it might give you an yeah. eighth of a second of, relief, but every instinct you have to give yourself security, give yourself reassurance, give yourself what you think you need to be okay, destroys Mm -hmm. you in the long run. And really what you need in that moment is to be like, this could happen. My car could go flying (laughs) off the edge. I could, you know, that it's not likely, but it could happen. Mm -hmm. It's not likely Mm -hmm. it could happen. And to invite it in, be like, okay, come on in, sit down next to me. Come on in, sit down. Mm. It's so antithetical to how, what we want in that moment. It almost seems impossible that that would be the solution. Yeah, I think you're right. I think what you're saying is that in that moment, you tend to have like a security blanket or something you resort to to feel uh, not just in control, but but secure. And when the moment itself is actually insecure and you have to, yeah. you have to live with that feeling. Yeah, absolutely. In order to learn something about it. Well, you have to buy into a structure, which isn't yours to say, if I follow the structure, if I don't reassure myself, if I don't allow myself to go down this particular prescribed path with, which emotionally makes sense, you know, you have to buy into an external framework that is mm-hmm. much more disciplined and oh i see yes also yeah. than mm-hmm. what you would want to do inherently in that moment right. so like when you're writing that book it's it, it's an external framework and it's providing a guidepost for how to be because of our inner compass has like completely lost yeah um well yeah and that's true and when you're sitting down to write a book you're you're playing that role of the author which is automatically an observer, even if what you're observing is yourself. Right. Yeah. Which is why I think potentially it could be really healing, but I feel like Mm -hmm. to write a memoir before you're ready, like for me, I was like, I know there are stakes, but I was deep pandemic, not quite ready to write the stakes, you know? And I felt like if I go down this, this could be really detrimental (laughs) to my mental health. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, there's some memories that you might not want to deal with just completely on your own in the room for days and weeks on end. <laughs> that I can understand. Yes. The idea of leaving some time between some events and the actual writing of yeah. a formal or an ambitious book is probably a good one. I needed to get what I could remember of Somalia down on this right yeah. way. Um, oh, for sure. That was the healthiest thing. But I, I think there are other things that I could, you know, it's been decades now and it's still, some material is still simmering. Yeah. The other thing that came to mind is, so the class that I took with you was about how to write a good villain. Uh-huh. And I feel like, that is the most healthy thing you can do to someone that is potentially a villain. And Mm -hmm. like, it kind of reminded me of the part of your book where you come to this moment of seeing the Pope talk about forgiveness. And I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. you want to tell that. Sure. Yeah, that that was actually crucial. And it probably saved me 
saved my life. But like I said, I was close to suicide sometimes, not not all the time, but also close to grabbing a gun, thinking I could maybe yeah. blast my way out. The pirates just left these rifles lying around like junk. And so it would have been a mistake in both cases. And at some point, I realized I had probably been living with anger and resentment, you know, waking up yeah. and feeling like I was just a burning weed every morning. Which is understandable. Well, I wanted revenge. Yeah, I wanted revenge for some very good reasons. These these assholes took me hostage. So I realized I'd been living like that for about two years, and it was probably not sustainable. And I heard the Pope on the radio. I had a shortwave radio. I didn't see him. But I heard him give a very interesting homily about forgiveness. And he said, at night we see all our mistakes and our, all our sins and all our, uh, the things we regret, like the stars in the sky. But in the morning, the sun rises. And he said, the sun is like the mercy of God. You know, it wipes out the stars. And he said, well, the whole point of forgiveness is to, to express that mercy to another person, to pass that on. I thought, well, that's actually very eloquent to somebody lying on a mat on a concrete floor. So I was full of all this resentment. And it occurred to me after listening to that, that I could actually use some of that wisdom to change my approach to being a hostage. And that was crucial. I mean, it was really, really important. I actually made a conscious decision to forgive the guards. Guards, of course, are not the bosses, but just on a daily basis to forgive the guys that I was dealing with and who were giving me these sort of gritty bowls of beans for, for food and to have a different approach to them in my mind took an enormous amount of pressure off the whole situation. And I realized that although I was not free in the slightest, I had one bit of freedom, which was in, in my mind. So that was really important. And what did that look like logistically? Did you have a mantra or how did you kind of manage that forgiveness for these people? Who... No, I was reflective. I was thinking, holy shit, I've been lying here for two years, figuratively. I've been in this state of resentment and wishing for revenge for two years. And I could just do something else. Right? I could take a different approach. Right. And I, I actually thought my way through it and then felt more detached from those emotions. Mm -hmm. I actually felt unhooked a little bit from that need for revenge. And that was the most important thing. It doesn't mean that I forget what they did to me. It doesn't mean that I don't put down the most awful things if they're important to the book when I came to write the book. It just meant that when every day started, I didn't need to you know, just be angry at pirates. I could, you know, smile at them, ask them how the night was. I could ignore them, but I could, I could sit and deal with the present moment, which was not too bad because I was still alive. So it was, I would say there was an element of conscious gratitude too. You know, another day I'm still alive. It's not bad. And also conscious, like whenever I felt those feelings come up, thinking, no, we're not doing that now. We're going we're gonna to move towards forgiveness instead. So it did not involve a mantra and it did not involve rituals. You know, I didn't start to candles or something that would have confused the pirates. Doing yoga confused the pirates enough. I didn't start doing ritualistic things. I just reminded myself when those emotions started to come up again that we're, we're not doing that anymore. The lucky thing is that I knew exactly who my persecutors were. I think in regular life, if you're mixed up about something, you don't always know what you're mixed up about. Totally. Um, you know, you don't, you don't always know who needs to be forgiven. Sometimes it's yourself, sometimes it's someone else that you're not even consciously being angry at. I do it myself, but I've known people in particular who sit and simmer 
And you know what? That's not a good way to get through a relationship or even a, an average yeah. day. And if, if you're doing that, then somebody needs to be forgiven. And you have to pinpoint who. And, some, and in my case, I, it was such an extreme situation. I, I knew exactly who, or at least I knew where to start. But I, I think maybe in the Western free world, it might take a little bit of self-reflection. Do you find that now, do you allow yourself? I mean, I feel like this question sounds like I have an answer in mind, but I truly don't. Because this story is so has been told so many times, do you allow yourself in some ways the messiness of the present? I don't know how else to ask it, but like if you tell your story enough and you become a person who has gone through this and has surmounted that and and you are who you are, listening to it, I would be curious if somehow it would be more nerve wracking to then go through something really hard in your current life. Yeah, that is hard. Because like mm. you hold your, yourself to a standard, which is barely attainable by anybody, no, not, let alone yourself again. Not for that reason. So I, I do know that life is fluid and that you keep going and you're going to find, you know, new disasters, even if this last one seems definitive. I don't hold myself to that. But when things go wrong, I still have this enormous massive emotion that can come up and, and become unmanageable. So I, I, I still have to, I still have to learn to manage it. I still have to, I mean, I know I have the tools, but I don't always know where they are. I've noticed that I have more of that emotion, not less of it than, than before. So in that sense, it's, in that sense, it's harder, but I don't think that I cling to the standard. It's more that um, I, th- I think I'm aware mm. that I have more tools. But I, what I just said about living in the free West, it's, that's from experience. I think it's not as easy for me to identify exactly what I may, might be upset about. Well, there's so many um, things. You know. <laughs> always. Yeah. <laughs> Every day. No, but they're not as bad. I mean, I also have to, if it's a, you know, it's a problem with my coffee machine right. or something like that. I try not to kick it across the kitchen. Is that something that in the past you would like kind of freak out at the coffee machine kind of thing or? Yeah. I mean, no, I was never nuts, but I, I do have more perspective on what doesn't matter. Yeah. Do I have less of a temper or more of a temper? If anything, I probably have more of a temper, but I also have more strategies for, for managing it. I've never been a terribly temperamental person, but I do think I have more to manage now. Yeah. Well, and maybe you feel safe now to release it. I don't know if there's any of that, but just, I think for me going through trauma when I was younger, I held on to it for a long time before things started unraveling. And then at some point Mm -hmm. it started all coming out and then it was like, oh, it's really coming out now, (laughs) you know? But and it was kind of because I had this distance and I was a little bit more in control, a little bit more mature, but then it was like, Oh, well, now your next challenge is to consciously handle all this, you know? Well, when you, when you lose control of how you are externalizing your interior life, it can be just a very humbling experience, yeah. you know, yeah, like, Oh my God, yeah. that's me now, I guess. Whew. You exactly. know, it's, yeah. it's really not as regulated as I thought. Sarah, do you have, do you have some insight about why you 
you felt that way sometimes on the on the Bay Bridge, for example? You know, I think that there's probably like a number of factors. I was um, around that time, I kind of developed OCD symptoms when I was in my mid 20s and didn't really know what they were. And um, was so scared of them, I wouldn't really even talk about them to my therapist, honestly, or mm-hmm. I did, and they wouldn't give me any kind of specific diagnosis. So then I just felt like, maybe I'm so crazy, they don't want to tell me or something, you know, and um, I'd never had that. I'm from Minnesota, and I drove everywhere over whatever I drove like a hell in high school. Mm-hmm. I honestly, it's something that I haven't unpacked too much. But I remember at the time thinking like, why is this happening? I've never had this problem before. And interesting. Yeah, my only thought is that I had already kind of started having this extreme reaction to things that were triggering. And that just mm-hmm. happened to be something that triggered me. And I see. I think that fear that I couldn't control what I was maybe going to do that I was going to maybe like throw myself off that bridge. Maybe I was not in the best place emotionally. And so I was worried that that was going to manifest in this really dramatic action. I don't know. That's what it sounds like, like a fear of loss of control, yeah. just like the the fear of, of blurting something inappropriate. And yeah, totally. Right. That that for sure was. And that was right after getting mugged where, oh yeah, like, oh. yeah, that was the bridge thing was before getting mugged. But after mm-hmm. getting mugged, anything that I thought mellowed out triggered and um, mm-hmm. I was in a really bad place. Yeah. So I've seen that before. I, w- I was married once and when I lived in San Francisco, as a matter of fact, and I noticed that, that my wife didn't want to get angry, but when she did didn't make sense. Mm. And then at the end of it, she cried. So there was, there was something that was coming up, but it wasn't actually anger. It was closer to grief. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's my big insight about my ex-wife. But, uh, <laughs> well, and I think that is a thing where, you know, you have one immediate response to something, but it may not be the thing that you're actually feeling. It's protecting you from feeling the, the real thing. Exactly. It's the surface version of something else. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you guys remember when you were kids and adults would become angry when they were scared and how completely mystifying that was? Mm -hmm. And I remember my mom actually explaining it to me. And, you know, I had gone into Prospect Park in Brooklyn when I was eight with without telling anybody with a friend. And we were just gone for like three hours on our roller skates and came back. And, you know, basically all the parents collectively screamed at us until they had no voice left and were, you know, and we were mystified. Like how, if you are really talking about your love and you're talking about our safety, I mean, Mm -hmm. it wasn't quite this intellectual, but like, why are you mad? Like, why aren't you embrace um, why aren't you you know they go through that quarter of yeah. a second of complete where, where i'm so you? glad you're okay i'm so glad you're okay before the like but um you know it's very hard to that disconnect is, is really interesting well, and, yeah and then i think there's something about being a woman and expressing anger which not to stereotype but mm, we mm-hmm. touched on this a little bit when we were first talking where it's not always okay to express what you're feeling as a woman. Like you're really worried about rocking the boat or not seeing nurturing or not being liked. And I think for me, that female socialization, when I was going through kind of my darkest depression and trauma stuff after like getting mugged, I was really grateful because so I'd see shooters in the news and think like, I feel as dark as I could, and that is never something I'm going to do. But I see where 
someone who doesn't have this emotional intelligence or they're around guns all the time or they're conditioned to be more out in the world and aggressive. And like, I just was grateful to not have been conditioned that way. But then for that same Mm -hmm. reason, I think it's harder a lot of times to express anger and express anger. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a taboo for for women, at least in many situations or maybe for girls starting. But, uh, you know, boys at least can yell. And girls eventually do too. But I th- I think that there was this pressure. I think men feel it too, for sure. A, a pressure above all not to cry mm. or above all not to not to give in to grief because the grief is even scarier than anger. Uh, so anger comes first and then somehow that happens. Mm. Um, and did you feel like that affected you before you went to Somalia? And then during that time, did you feel like, I don't know if it was even safe enough to cry there? So that that was a problem. I was much angrier on a daily basis than I was allowed to express. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm probably still dealing with mm-hmm. that. But yeah, that was a major problem. Uh, no, before that, if I got angry, I got angry. But during captivity, I was certainly not allowed to yell at the pirates. Sometimes I did, and they got you know they picked up their weapons. But no, I wasn't allowed to be as angry as I felt. So that you're right. That's a that's a really good example. Thinking about these captors, you said that you started talking to them. And did you feel like you're addressing them in a different way or even just the energetic shift of being like, I'm going to forgive for myself? Did that shift how they treated you at all or any of the dynamic? It probably did. I mean, I already had a working friendship with a few of them anyway, because they were as bored as I was during the afternoons, right? I mean, they wanted to talk to a stranger who had something new to say, just like I did. And although some of them didn't even want to talk to me if I tried to speak Somali, some of them had some English and they, they were conversational. Uh, did that get better afterwards? No, I don't, I don't think we had richer conversations necessarily. I was just more adept at, first of all, managing my own feelings, but also getting through the day and getting what I needed from them and not, just not being suicidal, you know, on a daily basis. So, um, and at that point, when I, when I heard the Pope's homily, I needed that. I was, it was getting pretty bad. You know, it was always a question of cycles, but cycles were getting shorter. Mm. It's, it's hard because reading your story is so different than hearing it from your mouth and being like, oh my God, what you have gone through is so crazy. <laughs> With that suicidal period, how much of your thinking about your dad factored into, I know you wrote about it, but did you feel like you had any empathy at all? Or did you feel like more scared that you were going to be like him or? Empathy for what he went through? Yeah, just, you know, like more understanding as much as you don't Mm -hmm. want to have to understand that. But yeah, no question. Uh, So first of all, part of the story is that I didn't even know it was suicide until 2010. Uh, Yeah, that's right. 41. And uh, two years later, I went to Somalia, right? So a year and a half later. So they were not connected. They were not causally connected. But yeah. They were close in time. And so I, I still had a lot to think about when I was in, in Somalia. And I think that instantly, yes, it gave me a level of empathy for my dad. I mean, of course, when I found out it was, it was suicide, I knew he had been an alcoholic. It put a lot of what he'd gone through into perspective. Well, already in 2010, but feeling that for myself, absolutely perspective. But the most important thing, I mean, without question, was first of all knowing it as a fact, and second of all, because I knew it, it was a 
bulwark against it. So it was a very strong, on some days it was just a matter of logic and will. I'm like, I can't do this to my mom. She can't have two men in her life too. And it's stupid. It's a pointless drama. But when you're in that place, that's not how it feels. So of course, I had a whole lot of empathy for my father. But the most important thing that knowledge gave me in those moments in Somalia was, don't do it to your mother again. And from that point of view, the experience was was a huge exercise in self-knowledge. Mm. Um, and that, that, that was very important. Thank you for sharing that. No, thank you. Thank you for the conversation. It's all in the book. It's all in the desert and the sea. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so- you read it on t- tape, right? Do you read your own audio? I don't. No. Oh, okay. No, someone else read it. I would like to do a version, but I, it's not in the cards right now. It's a lot of work is what I hear. It's, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm not a voice actor. But he does a good job because I listen to it. He, d- he does, right? And I was like, oh, it could yeah. be you. Like, I don't know yeah, you, but yeah. That's hilarious. No, it probably took him half or a third of the time that it would have taken me in the studio. So. Oh my God, yeah. And he does a good job. He does the voices too. I can't do voices. Oh, right. That's true. That's the whole thing. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, I listen to books. I People don't say books on tape anymore. I guess you uh, say books on Audible. I stream the sound of books into my ear yeah. from headphones. <laughs> um, it's amazing the voices that people they, can, can fluidly slip into. Yep. The only problem, this is totally a side note. I'm sorry for ending our interview on a tangent, but I just had this problem where it's the same reader, two separate books, and I can't get the first character from the other book out of my head. And they're so conflated. I I truly am almost unable to be in the experience. But anyway. Yeah, that can be a problem. No, some audiobooks are actual productions with a cast of characters, and I love those too, where where there are a bunch of different actors, and I love those. Uh, Lincoln and the Bardo is one of them by George Saunders. Oh, okay. That was, a, that was a very big production. I think it actually cost a lot of money. But uh, terrific actors and terrific scenes, you know, that you can make out just without even seeing it. Well, like back to radio of the 1940s, you know? Yeah, it's like a radio play. Yeah, it's like hearing Beckett on the radio. Yeah, a radio production. <laughs> well, is there anything coming up or that you'd like to share that we haven't covered or? Not at the moment. No, I don't think so. Just look for your book in the next 24 to 36 months. Yeah, exactly. I have no idea when the next book will come out. I have two of them working on Oh, okay, cool. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so, so thank much. You very much. Yeah, thank you both. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side-wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.